It was late 1963, and Ken Stieglitz, a new assistant professor in the electrical engineering department of Princeton, was lost in the sprawling, new, unfamiliar engineering quadrangle when he heard jarring sounds coming from behind an unmarked door. He looked inside and saw the racket was coming from loudspeakers attached to a refrigerator-sized rack of electronics and a digital tape drive. And it was clear that the two men trying to work this device, well, they were lost too. These men were not engineers. They were members of the music faculty. Godfrey Wynnum and James Randall had just synthesized music on the building's big new IBM computer. And now they were trying, struggling, to hear it. The IBM didn't make sound on its own. To hear it, they would need a device that would translate the IBM's ones and zeros into sound. That is, from digital into analog form. They could drive 45 minutes to Bell Labs to get the conversion done there, but the folks at Bell had donated this old converter to Princeton to try to save them the trip. However, this second-hand device broke easily. The composers were flummoxed, and standing in the doorway, just by chance, was one of the few people in the world who knew how to fix it. Talk about serendipity. In that moment, a mighty interdisciplinary research team was born. Together, in the decade to come, Ken Stieglitz and Godfrey Wenham would make big strides in digital music. This episode is that story. From the School of Engineering and Applied Science at Princeton University, this is Composers and Computers, a podcast about the amazing things that can happen when artists and engineers collaborate. I'm Aaron Nathans. Part 3, The Converter. Godfrey Wyndham was born in London in 1934 into an exceptionally wealthy family. His father was a real estate executive. The classical music writer Hans Keller took this teenage musical prodigy under his wing, teaching him how to properly listen and how to write reviews. In 1952, at the Salzburg Music Festival in Austria, Keller introduced Wenham to a mutual friend, Princeton music professor Milton Babbitt. We covered Babbitt in the first episode of this podcast. Wenham was accompanied at this festival by his mother. That's how young he was at the time. He had come to the festival because of his strong interest in the Viennese composer Arnold Schoenberg, originator of 12-tone, surrealist music. It was an interest Wynnum shared with Babbitt. Babbitt was impressed by Wynnum's intellect and proposed that he come to Princeton to study with him. Babbitt was so taken with this young talent that after the festival he went to Wynnum's home in London to discuss the arrangement with his parents. Babbitt and his wife, Sylvia, returned to America by boat with Wenham in late August of that year. Godfrey Wenham received his Bachelor of Arts degree from Princeton in 1956, his MFA in 1958, and in 1964, he was awarded the university's first doctoral degree in music composition. Along the way, he married one of Babbitt's collaborators, the famed soprano Bethany Beardsley. Wynnum had followed Babbitt to the Columbia-Princeton Electronic Music Center in Manhattan to work with the RCA Mark II synthesizer, an early, mostly analog device that was the first electronic machine upon which a musician could compose music. 
But Manhattan wasn't exactly next door to Princeton, where Wynnum and his family lived. And when the Engineering Quadrangle and the new Computer Center opened, Wynnum was among the first composers to try out the IBM 7090 to see if it could be used as a tool in the service of creating music. Babbitt was happy with what the Mark II could do and had no interest in working with the computer. Many of the young computer musicians, including a young Paul Lansky, had been taking computer music classes with Godfrey Wynnum. If you were a computer musician, chances are you intersected in some way with Godfrey Wynnum, perhaps regularly. And chances are you have a good Godfrey Wynnum story. Paul Lansky. Yeah. Um, he was an interesting character. He, he was sort of an oddball. He, he smoked like a fiend. And, uh, he, he was very thoughtful. Uh, I took some seminars with him. And he was good in seminar. How so? He was very, very open-minded. In her autobiography, Bethany Beardsley wrote that Wynnum was shy and avoided small talk. He walked around with the smallest pencil sharpener he could find in his pocket so that he would always have something good to write with. He worked in a pair of shredded shoes, a cashmere cardigan, a soft plaid cotton shirt, and, as she wrote, quote, pants worn until the seat shone. She said his interests included his work, philosophy, logic, music theory, game theory, chess, poker, and the game Go. He invented games and read entire mystery novels at bedtime. They had two sons who knew not to bother him when he was working, which was often. The British composer had worked with fellow Princeton composer Hubert Howe in the Princeton Computer Center to build a more composer-friendly version of music generation software building on the work done by the music-loving engineers at Bell Labs. Hubert Howe. Godfrey was a guy who, uh, as I say, you know, he's independently wealthy. Uh, as, as Jim Randall said, his father owned England. And uh, he, uh, uh, he would uh, sort of go to bed when the sun was coming up, sleep till about two in the afternoon, and then uh, by around seven or so, he'd wind over up at the computer center. After they completed the composing software, the computer changed. So they did it again, coding a second revision in the computer language of Fortran. So by this point, Wynnum really knew his way around the computer. He owed a lot of what he knew to Ken Stieglitz, the electrical engineering professor. Stieglitz was born in 1939, growing up in West New York, New Jersey and getting his bachelor's and doctorate degrees in electrical engineering from New York University. In one of his books, The Discrete Charm of the Machine, Stieglitz recalls as a child finding large discarded radios on the sidewalk, bringing them home, and dissecting them to see how they worked. Let's go back to that scene when Stieglitz encountered Wynnum and Randall for the first time with the broken digital-to-analog converter. Stieglitz looked at the device and knew that it was capable of processing digits that were among roughly 4,000 possibilities. The digits that the two music professors had fed into the machine were beyond that range. So, Stieglitz suggested scaling those digits down, and with that help, they got the converter working, for the time being. 
In his book, Stieglitz said that his first collaboration with the music faculty left him with the feeling of having landed on a South Pacific island in a giant silver bird. Wynnum and Stieglitz became great friends. Stieglitz would cue Wynnum into technological details that Wynnum could use to improve how the computer rendered music, and Wynnum would take it from there, figuring out how to implement them himself. He would hear things from Stieglitz and then go learn them. For example, Stieglitz told Wynnum that to really develop computer music, he would need to learn about the field of complex variables. So, Wynnum did. Ken Stieglitz. So I more or less, I, I, I would see Godfrey um, very regularly. We, we would have dinner every Monday, Monday night. And uh, when we weren't playing chess over dinner, we would be discussing you know, these uh, technical questions. We were learning from each other. I mean, yeah, we, 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 had, a lot of, we had a lot of mutual interests. He was interested in the foundations of mathematics and uh, logic and um, I would ask him about music. Stieglitz had been teaching digital signal processing to undergraduates in the early 70s and he said his conversations with Wenham affected what he was teaching in that class. Wenham's conversations with Stieglitz surely informed what he was teaching as well. Wenham had a whimsical side. On Wenham's compilation album there's a series of compositions called Variations on a Theme by James Pierpont, several extended reimaginings of Jingle Bells, named for the composer Pierpont. his son said after listening to some of the music that Godfrey wrote can't you do something simple so he wrote this extended set of variations on jingle bells which is really incredible that that occupied uh, Godfrey uh, for for quite a while so I remember going over to his house as he played what he had available you know what what, what was next it was charming Mark Zuckerman arrived at Princeton in 1970 and received his doctorate in music in 1976 he worked closely with Wynnum and Stieglitz on technical matters of music. Although Wynnum was a composer, his major contribution to computer music was the technical work. Charles Dodge. This probably took the place of his, his creative endeavors. Um, and he uh, found that he had a lot of, a lot of people d who depended on him and who liked him and who, who appreciated his efforts. I mean, I think he really found a place where he was... Um, useful and uh, something that he um, enjoyed doing. Dodge described Wynnum as shy, disheveled, kind, and helpful. He would spend a lot of time helping others work their way through the technical barriers. Another composer who had Wynnum as his advisor, Frank Brickle, said the most important thing he learned from Wynnum was not to become bamboozled by complexity. Wynnum told Brickle to ask the question, is this really as convoluted as it first appears? Isn't there a simpler way to look at this? Brickle remembered the night he first met Wynnum. It was in the computer center. 
He sat down at a table with a few other composers in the ready room, waiting for their jobs to finish, and they played bridge. He played Wynnum's hand while Wynnum got up to check on his job. It was a great hand, and they exchanged a subtle smile. When Wynnum returned, he had found an error in his job, and he looked over the code while he continued to play bridge. He also took a call every once in a while. It was quietly pointed out to Brickle that Wynnum was multitasking, playing bridge, debugging his program, and playing a game of blindfold chess at the same time. That's what he was doing on the phone. He was exchanging moves with his opponent verbally. There was no board. That's how his mind worked. Godfrey Wynnum loved solving puzzles. And the biggest puzzle of all at that point was finding a way for this team of composers to get past their biggest hurdle. The inability to hear the music the computer was creating without having to spend the day driving to and from Bell Labs. By this point, the computer was in a different location. The Princeton University Computer Center had grown into a bustling center of activity, with 33 full-time equivalent employees, and campus officials knew it was time to expand. In 1969, the center moved out of the Equad and into its own $2.2 million building at 87 Prospect Avenue, outfitted with a special cooling system to keep the machinery at a constant temperature and humidity. Water was circulated into the computer to keep it from overheating, a practice that has become more common today. The main machine at the new computer center was a 1.6 gigabyte IBM 36091. 14 times as much memory as the original 7090 model that had been in the Equad, but still representing just a fraction of the storage within the devices we carry in our pockets today. The new supercomputer worked a lot faster than the old one. A job that had taken four or five hours before now took maybe half the time, but people were now running much bigger jobs. Powerful as it was, the machine was still not set up to convert sound from ones and zeros into something human beings could hear. As we mentioned before, Bell Labs had gifted the Princeton composers an older digital-to-analog converter, but it was unreliable. Stieglitz had helped them patch it up temporarily, but it kept breaking, and after a while the composers gave up on trying to fix it. That meant that, for the time being, the composers still had to schlep over to Bell Labs in Murray Hill, New Jersey, 45 minutes away, if they wanted to get their digital tape converted into analog form. D to A converters were very rare at the time. Stanford University had a converter, too, but that was hardly a day trip. Wynnum figured, rather than trying to fix the old second-hand converter, it would be better to build one of their own. Mark Zuckerman. So we considered it would be a terrific advantage to have a conversion laboratory right on campus, and that's what we uh, went about building. Stieglitz said Wynnum had the idea to use a so-called mini-computer, not small by today's standards, but smaller than the mainframe at the computer center, and to turn that mini-computer into a digital-to-analog converter. He decided to try to use a Hewlett-Packard 2116C. It was roughly the size and shape of a microwave oven. Ken Stieglitz. And so he arranged, he, he wrote a program that would convert, um, it would go digital to analog and also analog to digital. So it was called DAAD or DAD, so we called it DAD. And he wrote the program um, without being able to test it 
by the way. I mean, these days we write a program, it doesn't work. We write a program, it doesn't work. You know, we, we do it 50 times um, and, and it finally works. That's how kids are learned, learned how to program. The idea of sitting down for a week and writing a complicated and tricky program and checking it without being able to test it is, uh, is unthinkable today. But um, he wrote the program, and I can tell you a little bit, I mean, maybe I can give you an idea of how tricky it is. Um, timing, the time that it takes for the instructions to execute is crucial because um, there's a, um, a circular, what's called a circular buffer involved. So the beginning of the buffer where the sound is kept before it's converted wraps around, and if it wraps around too much, it overlaps with the beginning, and that's disastrous. So everything has to be timed so that by the time um, by the time the, the uh, I mean the tail is the tail is chasing the head, so um, the head has to keep ahead of the tail and go around in a circle. And if the tail ever catches up with the head, the whole thing breaks and doesn't work right. And he had it all worked out well, in those days by milliseconds. You know, it takes so many milliseconds for this to happen, so many milliseconds, and it all worked out. And he was not writing in a high-level language. He was writing in assembler code for the Hewlett-Packard. Um, I don't think that he'd ever written a program in that language before. So not only didn't he have a chance to test, test the program, he couldn't test his knowledge of the language or anything. He, he from complete scratch, wrote this program and, decide, and and checked it mentally to make sure that it was right with all this tricky business, which would be hard to get right for anybody today, even. And he made an appointment. We made an appointment to drive up to northern Jersey to visit the Hewlett Packard place. And the engineers agreed that we could run, we could run this program there to see whether it worked. And we drove up there. He punched, he punched the program into their paper tape machine and read it in, and it worked the first time, which I always thought was one of the miracles of, of computer science that should be recorded <laughs> in, the, uh, in the religious texts of the, <laughs> of the discipline. Soon they'd have an HP mini computer of their own in the Equad basement paid for by a grant from the National Science Foundation. With Wynnum's program installed and streamlined by Mark Zuckerman, they started converting the tapes from the computer center across the street. What used to take composers a 45-minute drive in both directions now took them a walk of about five minutes. Here's composer Joel Gressel. Ken had a recording of something, something like a Schumann symphony or something on, on the tape. He played it back through the converter and he said, this is really good. It's as good as FM radio. Um, this is going to work. And it was just kind of moments. The converter used every bit of power the Hewlett-Packard mini-computer had to read the tape and push the data through the converter. But as Hail Mary passed aside, 
Godfrey Wenham didn't get the converter working by himself. In order to get it working, he needed a low-pass filter. That would filter out the analog frequencies that go too high. Stieglitz designed the filters, and Wenham built them. Ken Stieglitz. You know, it was a continual give and take, because really, um, I mean, musicians learn things when they grow up, and electrical engineers learn things when they grow up. And, and this was a point where, they, where the two paths converged, so we could share experience. But it was, it was uh, I don't know if it was significant in the way that, uh, you know, d discovering the, um, um, the helical structure of uh, DNA was, but um, it was an adventure, you know, it was, it was not something that, um, that was done much anywhere. He, he, didn't, he didn't have anybody to call up and say, oh, how do you do this? It was all... He had you. Yeah. We'll be right back with more of Composers and Computers. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might want to check out our other podcast, which also deals with technology. Cookies, Tech Security and Privacy deals with the many ways technology finds its way into our lives, in ways we notice and in ways we might not. If you're looking to shore up the security of your personal data and communication, you'll find some great tips from some of the best informed people in the business. You can find Cookies in your favorite podcast app or at our website, engineering.princeton.edu. That's engineering.princeton.edu. We're halfway through the third of five episodes of this podcast, Composers and Computers. On our next episode, we'll examine the work of Paul Lansky, perhaps the best known of the computer musicians to have come out of Princeton. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Here's the second half of part three of Composers and Computers. With the ability to now hear music on site, the crew of composers at the computer center picked up the pace. Paul Lansky recalled the sound was deafening when the converter was all powered on. Well, the, the big thing that changed was that the converter, the conversion facilities were, were not at Bell Labs anymore. They were at Princeton. And so you, you could have a much richer experience. You didn't have to drive 40 miles to hear your work. You just had to walk across the street. Yeah. Zuckerman says the first computer piece put through the Princeton converter may have been NP, one of Godfrey Wenham's earliest computer music compositions that appears to be his only surviving recording within the computer music genre. It wasn't released on record until years later. Zuckerman said that the title of the piece is understood to have been a nod to a popular question in computer science dealing with wicked problems, the most difficult problems to solve. It's such an important question, it's built in brick into the backside of the Princeton Computer Science Building. It poses the question, 
If the solution to a problem is easy to check for correctness, is it also easy to solve on its own? If it seems a little complex, well, that's the point. But, then again, how said Winnem may simply have meant NP to mean new piece. Lansky says he remembers it to mean non-programmable. In any event, the converter worked, and that short musical work, NP, could be heard after the tape was run through the converter, and that signaled a big change in what was possible for these composers. Here's Mark Zuckerman, who ran the conversion facility. This way you could turn it around that day, or the next day at any rate, because people would call me up at all hours to come over there and, and, and play it, and that helped the creative process significantly. And it encouraged a number of people to, uh, you know, to get involved who might otherwise have been discouraged. Uh, imagine what it would be like as a graduate student, for example, rather than a member of the faculty. The faculty knows that they're going to be around there for years. So they could take five years to write a piece, even if they were going to be uh, having to wait a week to be able to hear the results. Graduate students wouldn't have that luxury. So now you have the ability to actually get your feet completely wet in computer music because we had that facility on campus. Once word got out that Godfrey Wenham had invented a digital-to-analog converter, demand poured in from across campus and beyond. Mark Zuckerman. But you're right. I mean, as soon as there was a way of being able to use a mini-computer set up to uh, perform the DDA conversion, uh, made it available to uh, a number of other people. I went out to the University of Washington, for example, to build a computer, uh, you know, DDA conversion lab so that they could do uh, computer music. And there are other people who have, uh, you know, have done, uh, did, did similarly. With the converter making the creative process easier, more composers were showing up at the computer center. Zuckerman recalled spending late nights playing bridge there with fellow composers Joel Gressel, Richard Mextroth, and Frank Brickle. Also around at the time, he said, were Howe and John Melby. There was Rick Can. Lansky was also spending more time there, and he remembers visitors from other institutions, like composers Jonathan Harvey and Rick Grabner, both from England. Grabner had one of the first complete substantial pieces to be run through the new converter. Here's that piece which he generously sent us, Aspects of Three Tetrachords. exciting things working with a computer is that uh, I'd work hand and side by side with with the graduate students and with other graduate students and we'd go to the, the D-Day converter together and uh, we'd listen to each other's work and so you, you were sort of working at the same same desk as as some other people 
and that was that was exciting and it was it was it was a lively community and uh it's it was it was you you would get ideas that you wouldn't normally think of um so there was there was it was an exciting exciting time Composer Joel Gressel's work is interesting not only for the quality of the product, but the fact that he's made computer music a lifetime effort. He arrived at Princeton as a grad student in 1965. Two years later, he left town and then returned in 1970 to do his Ph.D. in computer music and took a couple of computer music courses with Jim Randall. Joel Gressel. It's it's easier to tell the computer what to do than, at least for me, than a group of performers. Like I, I, it's hard for me to tell a barber how to cut my hair. So I do it myself. And it was, it was the same way with performers. I don't, it was just some special place where um, I was on my own. But I think I just wanted to make music that was different and special. This is Joel Gressel's P-Vibes, Three Cannons. With the inability to hear his music as he was creating it, Gressel's work included a lot of mistakes, but he ended up incorporating many of those mistakes into the finished pieces. Joel Gressel. The half of the mistakes are advantageous. Why? You end up with something you didn't expect, but it's really interesting. Or you never would have, like some of the instruments were mistakes like i meant to multiply something by the 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 frequency i forgot so i have this tiny tiny number filtering some sound it's so tiny turns into a vibraphone which i never would have expected to this day gressel still uses music 4b the same program he used at princeton way back in the day. Here's some music from another fellow from around the bridge table, Frank Brickle, circa 1979. This is Bette Noir, composed as part of his PhD dissertation on the IBM 36091 in the Computer Center. He used Music 4B, software created by Godfrey Winnem and Hubert Howe. He converted it from digital to analog using Winnem's device. faculty of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Here's his 91 plus 5 for brass quintet and computer.
All this music was made possible by Wyndham's converter, which Ken Stieglitz noted had just 16 kilobytes of memory. That memory cost roughly $16,000, or $1,000 per kilobyte. To put that into perspective, Ken's current home computer, an older Dell laptop, has 16 gigabytes of RAM, or a million times more memory for a fraction of the cost. It's a good illustration of Moore's Law. Moore's Law was coined by Gordon Moore, who founded Intel in 1965. It's basically an observation that the number of transistors that fit on a microchip doubles every two years. This basically remained true until recent years. Computers were getting more powerful little by little, which would have massive implications later on. Ken Stieglitz. Underneath this is, is a boiling cauldron of energy called Moore's Law. You know, chips, you know, chips went from four transistors to four billion transistors, 400 billion transistors, and that's still, that's still hard to, for me to grasp. Um, and that was driving everything. I mean, everything that happens today is completely impossible without, Moore, without Moore's Law, so. Mm -hmm. As the campus computer grew progressively more powerful, Stiglitz and Wynnum collaborated in an increasing number of areas. In the summer of 1970, Wynnum took what he learned from Stiglitz and offered a weekly group to teach digital signal processing. Through the use of filters, Stiglitz and Wynnum, and later Paul Lansky, were able to provide the musicians with a richer quality of sound. For instance, reverb, the sound of speaking to a large empty room, was a new phenomenon when applied to computer-generated sound. They drew upon research from Bell Labs to create software that generated the reverb effect. Composer Charles Dodge used what he learned from Wynnum about reverb to go back to Columbia and realize his work, Earth's Magnetic Field. Charles Dodge. You know, what, what was wonderful about Princeton was the, uh, the engineering aspect. Uh, way ahead of, um, of most places was uh, Ken Stieglitz and, and Godfrey Wynnum and their experiments with reverberation and filters. That was, um, I guess reverberation was part of, was a filter. And the, the um, the way that they made those available to to composers to to play with was for me a, just a a watershed, a really meaningful uh, change in the way that uh, computers could be used. One of the more interesting collaborations between Stieglitz and Wenham was work on getting computers to make the sounds that exist between the notes. For instance, what you might hear between C and C sharp, or as Stieglitz called it. How to play in the cracks. Stieglitz said this can come in handy when trying to digitally replicate the human voice. Ken Stieglitz. Uh, but what if you wanted a pitch in between? Or what if you wanted to slide from one, from one pitch to another, which is done all the time, of course, in music and singing especially. 
So it turns out that there's a, a very neat way to do that, which is based on um, a mathematical identity, which is the sum of the frequencies you want up to a certain point. Um, and you don't necessarily have to restrict yourself to having a pulse at one sample and then zero, 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 and then a pulse at another sample and so on. You can fill all that in and get pitches in between. They published a research paper on it in February 1970, and, typical to Wenham, it was only a few paragraphs long. Manipulating speech was of special interest to Wynnum because he had been married to one of the most noted vocalists of their generation, Bethany Beardsley. Stieglitz and Wynnum had done some early experiments in synthesizing the human singing voice, but these tapes have been lost. Here's Mark Zuckerman talking about Wynnum. Yeah, one of the things that he thought would be funny would be, you know, to have somebody who couldn't sing suddenly be able to sing in you know, like a seven octave range. So he, they, they came up with this uh, piece, which was, uh, uh, which he spoke, which said this work was done twenty thousand samples under the sea. Okay, that was what he called the laboratory, and so he synthesized his voice going up and singing this aria. And this work was done 20,000 samples under the sea. I can't even begin to replicate it, but uh, uh, that I think was where he was where he was aiming. In June of 1974, Charles Dodge, by now on the faculty at Columbia, organized the musical program at the second annual Computer Art Festival at the venue The Kitchen in New York. Over a two-week period, dozens of computer musicians, including many of the ones we've discussed in this podcast attended to play their creations. Max Matthews, the engineer known as the father of computer music, presented his own music, as did his former colleague at Bell Labs and early computer music innovator Jean-Claude Risset. Even John Chowning of Stanford, whose landmark FM synthesis technology powered the creation of the Yamaha digital keyboard, he was there too. But one name was not on the list, Godfrey Wynnum. We can't say definitively that he was absent, but in her book, Bethany Beardsley notes that sometime during that month, she departed for New England for work, leaving Wynnum alone with their kids. When she returned in August, she was alarmed by his physical appearance. He'd been having night sweats and he looked tired. She insisted that he go to the doctor. What at first appeared to be a case of mononucleosis turned out to be Hodgkin's disease, a form of lymphoma. Beardsley set up the bedroom so he could stay home, listen to music, and visit with friends to keep his spirits up. Visitors flooded in. He propped up on pillows and played bridge with friends in bed. Polanski brought him a pile of records. Wynnum had a short remission in February of 1975, but then the chemotherapy started. Mark Zuckerman. So he had, you know, radiation and chemotherapy, and he was... Uh dreadfully sick. I mean, he was uh, you know, bedridden, and uh, he wasted away to virtually nothing. That April, Milton Babbitt visited him. He was apprehensive, but Wynnum immediately put him at ease by starting a diatribe against his sickening course of treatment. He then began a long explanation of a computer piece he was planning, 
It was to be a computer-synthesized soprano voice. He went on to expound on the music he'd been listening to, and finally back to the topic they both loved to discuss, Arnold Schoenberg. It was the topic that first brought them together in Salzburg in 1952. It was the last time Babbitt saw him. Godfrey Wynnum died on April 23, 1975, at the age of 40. Last saw him, uh, like it must have been a month or so before he died. Mm. And um, we were very close. I mean, uh, it was, uh, I, I was... I was really uh, affected by his passing there, and um, but I don't know what you could do. You know, uh, our our understanding of cancer and, and treatments for it are much better now than they were then. Mm. Was he in denial to some extent that he was sick? Uh, was he no, I don't think so. I I think once uh, he he realized that uh, he was not denying anything, but it was really too late. And then I think that he went and he had radiation or something like this, and the radiation uh, is probably what ultimately killed him, because wow. it was too much, you know. And I don't know, they probably can do better now. The chemotherapy might be better. Mark Zuckerman. It was it was tragic. It was tragic. Ken Stieglitz. Yeah, it, yeah, it's very painful because, um, you know, it's too bad. It, 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 he had uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, and unfortunately, he, you know, really good treatments for that have been developed since, uh, but he missed, he missed the boat, and it, it, was, um, it, was, it was a difficult time, very difficult time. I mean, I used to visit him, uh, and he—he he was a chess enthusiast. I mean, he was a—he was a very good chess player, much much better than I was. So, if if we played, uh, he would we would adjust the clock so we were about equal. So, you know, he could he he would get five minutes, I would get half an hour, you know, something like that. He was much better. And even then, he would he would crush me, but he. Um, he had a he bought a demonstration board, the kind that they use in tournaments. You know, I don't know whether you've ever seen them. Uh, somebody stands; it, it's sort of a like a big, huge whiteboard with a chessboard on it and magnetic pieces that you can slide around. And so we used to play that way when he was in bed. And um, you know, I re, I remember. Some of the last memories I have of him are Monday nights again, but we'd be we'd still be playing chess, but he would be in he would be bedridden and um, uh, I would visit. Um, yeah, it was it was devastating. I don't know what else to say about it. because he was a remarkable uh, you probably I'm sure I'm not the only one who's commented on that. He was, a, he was just a remarkable individual um, in many respects. I mean, aside from his intellect, his, his 
um, he, he was just a he was just a good guy too, you know. So. Godfrey Wyndham left behind a trove of materials, which were compiled in a book, The Music Theory of Godfrey Wyndham, by Leslie David Blasius, published by the Princeton University Press in 1997. Most of Wyndham's papers are archived at the Princeton University Library. The Equad Basement Lab in which he worked was named in his memory, the Wyndham Lab. That lab would continue to see a steady flow of activity in the years to come both from a small but devoted set of computer musicians, as well as the students in the course in computer music that the music school would continue to offer annually. A number of musical pieces in the coming years, including one from Milton Babbitt, were written in his memory. But, as with his life, Godfrey Wyndham's legacy lives on in his work unlocking the possibilities of how a computer can synthesize sound. In our next episode, we'll focus on the work of Paul Lansky, who would pick up Wyndham's research into synthesizing the human voice. And he would also create some of the most inventive computer music ever made. This has been Composers and Computers, a production of the Princeton University School of Engineering and Applied Science. I'm Aaron Nathans, your host and the producer of this podcast. I conducted all the interviews. Our podcast assistant is Mirabelle Weinbach. Our audio engineer is Dan Kearns. Thanks to Dan Gallagher and the folks at the Mendel Music Library for collecting music for this podcast. Graphics are by Ashley Butera, and Steve Schultz is the Director of Communications at Princeton Engineering. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Show notes, including a listing of music heard on this episode, sources, and an audio recording of this podcast are available at our website, engineering.princeton.edu. If you get a chance, please leave a review. It helps. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Princeton University. Our next episode should be in your feed soon. Peace.